Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, October 22nd, and I'm your host, Kara Santa Maria. We have a great episode for you today. I've just recently returned from the UK. We were doing a book tour for the new book, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, How to Know What's Really Real in a World Increasingly Full of Fake. That's, of course, the eponymous book for the other podcast that I work on. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. And I am exhausted, but I had so much fun. We got to go to Manchester. Um, well, first we were in New York and Connecticut, and then we were in Manchester, Edinburgh, London, and Cambridge. I did some incredible interviews while I was there and, you know, just generally had a wonderful, wonderful time. But back to reality now and back to this great podcast episode featuring Kate Kenfield. Before I tell you about her, though, I want to thank those of you who make Talk Nerdy possible each week. Those of you who have pledged your support at patreon.com slash talk nerdy include Rob Shrek, Pedro M. Rosario Barbosa, Phil Tiber, the Zomber... The zombie drummer. Sorry about that, zombie drummer. Uh, David J. E. Smith, Jeffrey Perez, Charles Payet, Jafe, Gabriel Felipe, Jeremio Gonzalez, Brian Holden, and Jeffrey Sewell. I thank you guys so very much from the bottom of my heart. If you want to pledge your support, you just got to go to patreon.com slash talk nerdy to learn more. Also, remember that the Talk Nerdy store is now open. Just go to talknerdymerch.com and you can check out all the cool merchandise that is available for sale there. And of course, a couple more announcements. Here's a really good one. Guess what show I'm going to be on on, let's see, what is the date? I think it's November 2nd. Um, I want to just make sure. Yes, on November 2nd. I'm going to be on Jeopardy. What? And I'm actually reading clues in order to promote a a new book. It's um, Almanac 2019, Hot New Science, Incredible Photographs, Maps, Facts, Infographics, and more. And of course, I am the quiz master and sponsor for the new book, by National Geographic Almanac 2019. So much fun. Um, I just want to double check because I'm almost positive that <laughs> that November 2nd. No, I said it wrong. I'm the worst. It's Thursday, November 1st. Guys, guys, November 1st. I'm going to burn that into your minds right now. Thursday, November 1st. Find your station, set your DVR, check me out on Jeopardy. Hello, career highlights. So freaking cool. Okay. That's enough of that. Let's talk about the new episode. This week, I had the wonderful opportunity to speak with Kate Kenfield. She's a speaker, writer, and empathy educator based in Melbourne, Australia. But of course, I was surprised to hear her American accent because although she lives in Melbourne, she um, is American. (laughs) Threw me for a loop when we first connected. Um, And she does workshops writing, and she actually makes products, these cool cards called Tea and Empathy cards. They're all designed to help people communicate in relationships. So we're going to talk quite a bit about the Tea and Empathy cards, which I actually bought and I'm excited to use in my own practice. And of course, what empathy is, why it's important, how we can improve our interpersonal relationships, how we can improve our communication in our relationships, and so much more. So guys, without any further ado, here she is, Kate Kenfield. Well, Kate, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. I'm delighted to be here. So we are connected from almost... 
I don't know if I would even say almost, but like about as far as we can be apart. Isn't that true? <laughs> almost, yeah. <laughs> so I'm here in Southern Like an California. entire Pacific Ocean. Yeah, exactly. And you are, are you in Melbourne? I am. Yeah, I'm in Melbourne, Australia. So um, I was just saying before we started recording that I expected you to have an Australian accent because you were recommended as a guest to me from Shane Huntington. And then, of course, you are American. And so I you said it's, it's actually in your FAQ because people ask you that a lot. I do get that a lot. I'm actually from close to where you live. I'm from California originally. (laughs) I love that. So we're going to talk about all sorts of things today. I know we're going to go off on some tangents. I I know that Shane speaks so incredibly highly of you, even recently when there was like some bullshit that I was dealing with on Twitter, some sexism or misogyny, like, you know, any other day. He was like, oh my gosh, yet again, Uh you have to talk to Kate. She's amazing at this stuff. She's great. I'm a middle-aged white guy, but she's awesome. And I was like, okay, okay, cool, cool, cool. (laughs) Don't worry, it's on the calendar. Um, So I'm super excited because I think that there's a lot of stuff going on in the news, a lot of personal stuff that you'll probably have a lot of insight about. But before that, let's talk about who you are and what you do. Tell me about Kate. Tell me about also Mm. tea and empathy. Yeah, yeah. So both of these things are quite related. Tea and empathy is something that I (laughs) created very much out of what I wanted to see in the world. So basically what I do is I'm I'm a speaker and educator and I teach people how to improve their relationships through better communication. And a lot of what that looks like is teaching workshops on how to increase empathy skills. And, And often that looks like teaching people how to improve their emotional literacy and basically learn how to talk about feelings. And it's sort of a a funny career path about how I got here. My background is in public health and I spent most of my career actually teaching sex and relationships education. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, sometimes people are sort of surprised how I end up ended up doing exactly what I'm doing now. Often I'm teaching healthcare providers actually about how to improve their their empathy skills. You know, for much of my career, I've been teaching college students how to be more sexually healthy. Um, but it all kind of connects. <laughs> it, all, it, all, it all really connects, I think, because it's all about how to um, talk about the things that we're not taught when we're young mm-hmm. that are really fundamental to how we relate as human beings. And we get to adulthood and it's, you know, oh, how, do I, how do I actually do this stuff? And we, get, we kind of scramble, I think, once we get to adulthood. Oh, absolutely. Oh my gosh. I have so many questions for you. I have so much I want to talk about. Um, there's, I can't wait. Yeah, I'm so excited. There's so much crossover with this in both the science communication work that I do, but also now I'm working on my PhD in clinical psychology. So of course, there's a ton of crossover there. So you started... Yeah. Uh, so I see that you have a, an undergrad in anthropology. And of course, that makes sense, right? Yeah. I've always been really interested in mm-hmm. human beings and how they interact and how they relate to one another. But um, the master's in public health brought you into this um, world of pu- sexual health and and trying to improve sexual health. And I mean, that makes sense that it would eventually evolve into a conversation about relationships because those things go hand in hand, but they are never taught in like a sex education class. No, not at all. Like if people are lucky enough to have some sex education that is even remotely accurate or worthwhile, it tends to be really mechanical mm-hmm. or or just anatomical. You know, if it's it one of the things I think about is like how often in your adult relationships is it useful to know about what where the fallopian tubes are? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that's all important knowledge, right? But it's it's um, really useful in the navigation of actual relationships. 
think what I was finding when I talked to people is that the stuff that they really needed to know was how to navigate difficult conversations and how to navigate their feelings. You know, and, and one of the things that I really appreciate about the public health world is that they're, they're talking more and more now about social connectedness as a public health issue and how the importance of our relationship health really has concrete implications for our, our long-term health. So, you know, both the public health perspective is the, the sexual health stuff, but also the relationship health. And I'm glad there's more of a conversation around that happening now. Absolutely. And I mean, even when we get down to basic interpersonal skills, and but especially within maybe not even a what we think of as a, a quote unquote relationship, like a loving like partner relationship or a relationship between friends or family members, but even just interactions, like a one-on-one interaction yeah. with a human being, whether it be sexual yeah. or not. I mean, I often think about the way that children are raised in Western cultures. Um, you know, obviously my perspective comes from uh, my American upbringing, but I don't think it's that terribly different in probably most of the places where my podcast listeners come from. So the UK, maybe Germany, France, um, Spain, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, places like this, where what you've got is that, A, boys and girls are raised completely differently with uh, regards to how they're quote unquote, supposed to interact with other people in the world. And B, we're not taught simple things like consent. We're not taught simple things uh, like reading somebody else's cues. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And basic things like how to identify our own feelings mm-hmm. and how to give names to those feelings. You know, I think for, for little boys, I think about too, they're actively discouraged to talk about feelings. And I think this has really far reaching consequences into adulthood. Oh, for sure. Because when we talk about empathy, right? Empathy is a little bit deeper than sympathy. Sympathy, mm-hmm. you know, means that you can feel bad for somebody. Like if something something bad mm-hmm. happens to them, you know, they, they get in a car wreck and they get injured, they lose a loved one, their pet dies. You can look at them and go, that is sad. I can feel bad for them. I can feel for them. But empathy is really trying to experience what they're experiencing. It's trying to put yourself into their perspective and see the world through their eyes so that you can, even if it's different than your own perspective, you can try and understand where they're coming from. And I don't think that that is a skill that we are ever taught unless we just happen to have maybe a good way to put it is good like modeling. Like we just happen to have very empathic parents who taught us that just through their actions. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it, it's, you know, I think an important piece about what you just said is that it's a skill. Mm-hmm. Like something that I encounter a lot in the trainings that I give around empathy is that people think of it as a virtue rather than a social skill. And I think, I think that's a dangerous belief because people think that you either have it or you don't. It's a personality characteristic. Yeah. And, and I think that's dangerous. And I, I, the, the comparison that I make is that I think empathy is more like, uh, learning a musical instrument. Like it's something that, you know, you get some people in the population who are like, like a Mozart and other people who are kind of tone deaf, but the, the majority of us are somewhere in the middle where with good teachers and devotion to practice, you really can get very proficient over time. And most of us can learn how to play Mary Had a Little Lamb on a piano in a couple hours. Mm. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I think that that piece that you said too about how understanding from someone else's perspective and recognizing that it's not 
your perspective, I think is really pivotal. And I think this is something people often get wrong about empathy. People can, it's, it's a real subtle nuance, but this idea that empathy is not just stepping into someone else's shoes from your perspective, mm-hmm. but really understanding that your perspective is going to be potentially very different from theirs is really crucial because we can often not realize that our experience is valid, but not universal. And this requires a lot of humility for people, I think, in recognizing that, that their feelings are not other people's feelings and that p- people can think that they're practicing empathy when what they're really doing is projecting. Oh, so true. And it's especially true when we talk about privilege, right? It's especially true mm-hmm. when we talk about living your life, having things that the difficulties, and this is something that I constantly struggle with, um, especially when I try to talk about these things online. Privilege doesn't mean that you don't have hardship. And it doesn't mean that things aren't sometimes (laughs) difficult for you. But what it means is that when we face situations, the exact same situation as somebody who is maybe historically disenfranchised, whether that be um, because of their ethnicity or their gender or their orientation or whatever the case may be, their social uh, class, that we don't deal with additional difficulties that they deal with just by virtue of being who they are. Yeah. And I think so much of true empathy is really believing someone else's experience and recognizing that it is different from your own. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think when you, when you have that sort of flawed empathy perspective of like, in order to validate this person's emotional experience, I really need to see it through my perspective. Then you, you really miss that piece. You know, so I, the the definition of empathy that I teach in my workshops is that it's about being curious about and non judgmentally engaged with someone else's emotional world, hmm. and I've I've found that helpful in exchanges around empathy where there's a privilege gap, specifically because of what you just talked about, recognizing that someone else may be carrying disadvantage that that you don't, and you will never be able to understand truly what it is that they've dealt with. Yeah. And I think this can happen all the time. And you just have to be able to sit with curiosity and non-judgment in order to be able to be empathetic to them. You're never going to really know what it is that they're feeling. Yeah. I think that's so important when we talk about, for example, like my early career training now, because I'm only a second year PhD student in, in clinical psych. I, t- I took a big turn from psychom and from um, neuroscience. So I'm, I'm learning all of these therapeutic skills now that I didn't ever know, except from the other side of the couch, being, a, being an actual patient. And, you know, one of the things that regardless of your orientation, regardless of if you're in, into psychoanalysis, or I'm into existential therapy, maybe you're into cognitive behavioral therapy, or whatever it is, a lot of people keep going back to Carl Rogers, and they keep going back to this, um, these factors that he talked about, which really dealt with... Um, it really came down to empathy. Like it came down to understanding that you are sometimes going to have clients that you disagree with, that you come from a different background from them. Maybe you are, you know, you can't help but judge them. But the truth of the matter is you have to have this, you know, this ability to step back from them and to accept them 100%, you know, like completely in a non-judgmental way, be there for them. You're not there for yourself. You're there, whether this is like, you know, a pedophile, whether it's a rapist, whether it's somebody who you, you know, ultimately don't 
agree with at a fundamental level, you still have to have what he called unconditional positive regard for them. Yeah. And that's hard. Yeah. It's really, really hard. But that's that's where that lack of judgment comes in, right? Like, and I'm not saying that everybody in life should do that with everybody else because you won't get taken advantage of. But if you are trying to work on, you know, accepting your children or accepting members of your family that you can't change, regardless of of, you know, maybe something that they did in the past. That can be really helpful because that's when your sort of empathy muscle really gets tried, isn't it? Right. I think I think comparing like that discussion of an empathy muscle, I think is really useful Mm -hmm. because I think um, I really think that non judgment is a prerequisite for an exchange being an empathetic one. I think it's just that depending on the interaction, that's going to be a easier or a more difficult lift. Yeah. So like what you're describing in a therapeutic interaction where you have a client who's done something morally repugnant, that's going to be a big lift, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, compared to a a friend that's gone through a rough time, you know, that's going to be a smaller lift. You know, I think um, empathy is, you know, is, is emotional labor, right? And, but emotional labor is what, you know, what relationships are based on. And that's something that ideally should be balanced and exchanged mutually within relationships. But I, I think what you say too, that it's, it's important to recognize that empathy isn't the same thing as agreement. Yes. And that's, that's often something, yeah, that's often something that I'm clarifying in the, in the work that I do that people think it's the same thing as agreement when it's not, we can be empathetic even when we don't agree with someone's life choices. And that's often where relationships can kind of go astray. Like where you, you have a friend or a partner who's making some decisions that might be different than you'd make. And, and the, the natural response is to go into hardcore unsolicited advice giving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's just the, the opposite of what's really needed to, to be supportive and actually helpful when someone just really needs to be heard and listened to. Yeah. And on the flip side of that, pretending, which I think a lot of people feign empathy because this is what they think empathy is, but pretending that you know what they're going through. And, you know, let's say you have somebody who just lost their parents and you've never lost your parents. Maybe you have lost your parents and it is helpful because you can talk about your shared experiences. But if you never have sitting there and saying, I know exactly how you feel, oh, you know, it's like, actually, (laughs) that just insults them. Yeah, it can it can actually do more harm than be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, a friend of mine, Megan Devine, has just written this amazing book called "It's Okay That You're Not Okay" mm-hmm. that goes into a lot of detail about this, and it's 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 incredible to me how um, like when when someone has a grief experience, it's often our first reaction to try to find within ourselves some sort of similar grief experience that we've had to relate. Like I think that's a desire for connection that's really normal, mm-hmm. but it's it's often one of the the more kind of uh, destructive things that we can do like when someone's has fresh grief for us to hijack it with old grief is um can be a really painful thing to do when really they just need to be heard about what's going on for them um i mean it's it's particularly destructive when their fresh grief is compared to an irrelevant grief experience yeah. like they've just lost their parents and and you compare it to when, you know, your grandmother died when you were three, who is like your grandmother that you barely knew. Yeah. Or, yeah. It's like so narcissistic. <laughs> and, and it's yes. funny because in many ways, it is sort of the first stage to empathy, right? It's like, oh, somebody's going through something bad. 
I want to feel what they're feeling. Let me go back to when I went through something bad so that I can be at their level. So it's like, it's like you're starting along the right track, but then co-opting their grief. I love that you said that and like talking about their fresh grief and co-opting it for either irrelevant grief or your kind of um, dusty old grief is like basically the most <laughs> narcissistic thing you can do. And of course, to them, they're going to be like, yeah, hi, this isn't about you. <laughs> this isn't about you. Yeah. yeah. Please don't make this about you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I get a lot of questions about this in my workshops because it's it's so common that people have this experience and and how poorly their communities around them support them around grief. Because this again, this is another one of those adulting skill sets mm-hmm. that we're not taught how to do. Like, how do you how do you support someone around grief? Um, I'm doing a training about this actually um, coming up. A, a, a university department has a had a staff member that had a major loss and they, they recognized that this was something where they really wanted to support the staff member. And um, so they've brought me in to do an empathy training to make sure that they don't stuff it up. Yeah. They really want to make sure that the staff member feels supported when she comes back from bereavement leave, which I thought was, was really quite progressive and cool. I wish more, uh, wish more companies would, do that sort of thing. Oh, absolutely. And I think that this, you know, this speaks to me at a very personal level because I am working now. I mean, my my main research interest and eventually what my clinical focus will be, but but even as of right now, my research interest is in death and dying psychotherapy. So although I'm not that oh, interested wow. in doing grief therapy, you know, I, I don't plan on building a practice around helping the living with their experiences after loss. That is a practice and there are a lot of really good practitioners who do that. I'm really interested in working with people who are in hospice or who have a terminal diagnosis Mm. and who are coming to terms with the fact that they are going to die, preparing for that, but also experiencing what, um, you know, what there's kind of a movement uh, within this community uh, towards dying a good death and, you know, having this be that final stage of growth, but it be, you know, a real meaning making experience in their lives, not something that we culturally in America, but I don't think Australia is that much different than this. We're very death denying. We tend to run the other direction, just pretend, put on a happy face, be happy for everybody. You're never going to die. Don't worry. We'll just keep taking our meds. And they said three months, but let's make it five years. And it's like, no, at a certain point, reality has to, to sink in and you have to live your life knowing you're, this is the end. And how can we make the most meaning that and be an authentic uh, meaning? You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's incredible. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, and so it's so lacking in our society. And I think that it, it comes down to this conversation about empathy. We are so afraid personally that we are going to one day die, that we refuse to be empathetic towards people who are dying. So instead, we Mm -hmm. sort of sweep them under the rug, or we sort of treat them as if they're just not trying hard enough, which completely Mm -hmm. undermines their personal experience and takes them from being victims of circumstance into being perpetrators, which is super... I mean, it's the same thing we do with victims of sexual assault. It's actually super gross. And we only do it because our own fear prevents us from being empathetic to their situation. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's an epidemic of being unable to sit with uncomfortable feelings. Mm-hmm. And it, like the way this just permeates so many facets of life, like the, the lengths that people will go to, to not be able to sit with an uncomfortable conversation. 
is just incredible to me. Like our, our inability to sit with our own pain and other people's pain is just incredible. And I think this, like, you know, it, it happens, it's happening in the, the huge conversation around sexual assault that's happening right now. Um, it, it happens around death and illness. It's so uncomfortable for us to just sit and be present with someone else's pain. And, you know, I see this, this constantly in my work, what it's like for people to just sit there and listen to someone else's discomfort. And, and in most of my workshops, people are talking about relatively surface level stresses around work and things like that. Mm-hmm. Like, unless it's a group where there's a lot of psychological safety, people tend to not share deeply traumatic things. But even just, I'm feeling overwhelmed about my workload right now. Some fairly significant feelings can come up. And you can see how the people listening to this will feel um, uncomfortable just listening and not going into problem solving mode. Yeah. And there's and there's so much pain that we experience as humans that can't be fixed. You can't fix death. You can't fix trauma. And we just we don't we aren't taught that that's just stuff that has to be felt and heard, not fixed and managed. Yeah, and in feeling it and and hearing it, it actually does become something that we can live with and even really, I think, make into a meaning-making experience, but mm-hmm. we try to run. I think this has been the greatest learning curve for me, and it continues to be in my studies and in my practice because I've always been that kind of person. Like, you know, I used to think that therapy, that a therapist's job was to help fix the patient. And now I really understand mm-hmm. that their job is to help the patient feel empowered and feel use, not useful, necessary, like feel cared for. You know, it's, it's like, oh, I'm here for you and you're never going to get anywhere unless you are ready to get to those places. I can't tell you how to have insight. You know, I can't just tell yeah. you, like, you, you hear this a lot. People like go to therapy and they're like, oh, but she keeps dating the wrong guys. And I wish somebody would just tell her. It's like, yeah, she's been told. <laughs> like, that is not, the <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's not insight until you come to it on your own. And that is the right. important part. I think that that's necessary with empathy is that, yeah, certain things can't be fixed. Other things that probably could be fixed if the person weren't so dense, like that's not the yeah. approach, right? The approach to empathy is just, it's it's being there with somebody and and having them know, like you said, your friend's book, it's okay that it's that they're not okay. When I was going through the deepest, darkest experiences of my own depression, long before I was in regular therapy, long before I took medication, I would try to explain this to my significant others, to my partners. And they'd be like, what do you, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, there's nothing you can do, but I need you to still be here and tell me I'm not losing my mind and tell me that you love me regardless of how awful I am. And that's not an easy place for somebody to be. No, not at all. I think it can, people can feel quite helpless Mm -hmm. when in the face of that, you know, and I think they're, we're, we're so often taught that our value to our loved ones is in our problem solving ability, uh, you're so not right. in our presence. And, and that's, that's something I try to unpack right away in the workshops that I teach. It's just that your value is in your presence and your listening and these, these concrete skills around that, uh, you know, helping people give language to their feelings can be so powerful and helping people feel heard can be, be so powerful. And that it's rare that someone actually wants advice 
when they're having a rough time. Yeah. And if they do want advice, give them an opportunity to tell you they want advice. And the, the best advice happens after the empathy happens. Because like, empathy is really data. <laughs> and you know that data can actually give you the ability to create better advice. Because if you don't know what it is that they're feeling, you can't really give them solutions that's that will actually work. Oh, it's so true. I mean, you cannot just make the assumption that you know what somebody's personal experience is because they aren't you. They weren't raised the way that you were raised. They didn't have the same problems you had and they didn't have the same privileges that you have. And all of that has to come together. You're never going to know unless you ask them. You know, I have, I think, a question or a conversation starter, something I want to broach that is a little bit of a fine line. And so I just want to say that up front. Because empathy, when I think of empathy, and I think of psychology, and I think of interpersonal skills, a lot of more recent conversations come up for me about gender. And mm -hmm. I, I want to maybe we can talk about some myths that need dispelling, but maybe we can talk about some stereotypes that are stereotypes for a reason. Um, one thing that really spoke to me within the past several years and made me think much deeper about how I sort of categorized and made assumptions about, and this is in a more binary way about men and women, but of course, um, maybe I should say about more masculine or more feminine behaviors, was watching Jennifer Siebel Newsom's film, The Mask You Live In. Have you seen that film? No, I haven't. Okay, so I highly recommend it. It's a documentary. It came after she did a film called Misrepresentation. And misrepresentation it involves a lot of conversations with very high profile, kind of powerful women and their experiences sort of living in quote unquote, a man's world. So for example, Condoleezza Rice is sitting there and she's like, do you know what it's like being the only woman in the war room? Let me tell you. And there's, you know, a lot of these really were like women who are on the boards of these high level organizations where they're the only woman there and they're dealing with dealing with mansplaining and bro appropriation, all these issues. But then she did a follow-up called The Mask You Live In, which is about basically the fact that we raise our boys to not be okay being in touch with their emotions when they feel strong mm -hmm. emotional experiences. They're not allowed to cry. Instead, it's much more socially acceptable to punch or to be violent or to be aggressive. And she follows these she follows a great program at San Quentin with um, juvenile offenders who are lifers and they're talking about their really like hard uh, experiences with with their fathers or with having a lack of a father or feeling like the first time they were a man was when they, you know, committed larceny, grand larceny, or when they committed a murder. And wow. you know, like just these conversations about the standards that we place on young boys versus young girls and how maladaptive they can be with regards to empathy started to change my view. Mm -hmm. I used to just think guys just suck at empathy, but now I'm like, they don't have a chance. <laughs> they have no chance at all. Yeah. All right, guys, I want to take a quick moment to thank the sponsor of this week's episode, Calm. I love Calm. I tell you that every time I have the opportunity to, it is the number one app for sleep, meditation, and relaxation, and was even named Apple's 2017 app of the year. And of course, when you go to calm.com slash nerdy, you're going to get 25% off of a Calm premium subscription. That's just because you're a Talk Nerdy listener. It includes hundreds of hours of premium programs, including guided meditations and a brand new meditation every single day called the Daily Calm. 
sleep stories, and so much more. My favorite part of Calm, I think, has to be the music that's available in the app. There's music for focus, music for relaxation, and of course, music for sleep. I listen to Calm every single day. And I do a guided meditation every day as well. It really helps me with anxiety, helps me when I'm getting pretty overwhelmed with work, with having so much to do, taking a moment to step back, to reflect, to be a bit introspective and realize I've got this. I've got this. And guys, you can learn everything there is to learn about Calm. You can experience all of the wonderful programs and really try it for yourself. You've just got to go to calm.com slash nerdy. Again, that is going to be 25% off of a Calm premium subscription, which includes unlimited access to all of Calm's amazing content. So get started today at calm.com slash nerdy. Once again, That's calm.com slash nerdy. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. And so I'm wondering what your perspective is on that working with people and like the experiences that you have working with people from, you know, a variety of, of genders and where some of the difficulties lie and where some of them may be. I don't know. Some of the, the myths are there, but also some of the things that I think we all kind of see are big social problems. Yeah, I have a lot of feelings about this. Right. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I find interesting about my work is that when I do a, a public tea and empathy workshop, like something that's ticketed where anyone can come, it will be 75% women. Mm-hmm. And most of the men that come, come because their they're female partners bring them along. Mm-hmm. But the workshops that I do for organizations that's when there tends to be more men that come along because it's something that their company sponsors. And then there's more of a permission to attend or sometimes it's a little bit of a, uh, an obligation and the, the participation that I get and the feedback that I get from, from men is really quite incredible because they haven't had the opportunity to learn about feelings in that way. Um, And I've had some, some beautiful emails from men talking about how incredible that's been for them to have the space to learn about feelings and talk about it in that way. And the the reactions from men can actually be quite a bit more extreme because Mm. it's a bit more foreign to how they tend to relate socially. The most powerful experience I had with male participants though, was um, I did a, I did a workshop for a group of domestic violence perpetrators where there was, I think there was 15 men and one woman Mm -hmm. in the group. And um, that was uh, one of my more powerful teaching experiences that I've ever had in my life. And they were all there as a requirement. They had to do a a series of relationship education workshops um, as part of their required uh, after they'd been convicted, like what they were required to do. Yeah. And that was, that was a bit intense for me because normally the people who attend my workshops are coming very willingly. So I wasn't sure how that was going to, how that was going to go, but they were just so warm and excited about it. (laughs) And, um, I think the the most memorable point of the workshop was, uh, there's a component of the workshop where everyone gets into small groups and this, this one man was sharing a story about a friend of his that had died and he was still experiencing grief around it. Um, and as I said, people don't normally share things quite that intense at my workshop. So he was 
clearly feeling quite safe to share something more in depth. Mm-hmm. And I use these uh, feelings cards in the workshop to help identify feelings and to exchange empathy. And another man in the group uh, pulled out the card that said vulnerable, like asking him if he felt vulnerable around this. And I remember him saying like, yeah, man, that's it. So these, these, these two men that had had a history of violence talking about feelings of grief and vulnerability. And I just remember locking eyes with another facilitator that was there just going like, is this really happening? Right. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, yeah. And at the end of the workshop, they gave me like, two rounds of applause and were asking me questions about how to do these empathy skills without the feelings cards, like with the, with the women in their lives. Like it was, it was really surreal <laughs> how much they responded to it uh, and how much they responded to having the language around their feelings. So uh, it, it, it's something that, um, you know, I, I think there's only so much you can do in a two hour workshop, mm-hmm. um, but it's clearly something that is a skill set that a lot of men want and need. It's just a matter of how to pitch it to them and, and reach them. Yeah. And kind of like what you said before, it struck me the way you worded it to, to give them permission to participate, because mm-hmm. I feel like so much of these conversations, you know, when we talk about attending therapy, for example, you know, having one-on-one individual psychotherapy. I think that historically women were flocked to psychotherapy. Like you think about the earliest, you know, eras of like Freudian analysis. And it was like, you know, this man sitting there with all of these quote unquote hysterical women who were suffering from exhaustion, (laughs) you know, and it's like this, this culture of like, it's okay for women to be quote unquote neurotic. And it's okay for women to be like, I can't handle my feelings. And I can't handle all of my domestic responsibilities. And I really want to talk to somebody and, and get to the core of, of who I am and what I'm doing. And like, men are like, uh, a shrink? Are you kidding me? You're telling me I should see a shrink? Like they're insulted by even the concept because right. there's so much stigma around a guy feeling anything like yeah. that bad. Yeah, feeling anything that isn't anger. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, right, right. And it's like, like think about at the highest corporate level, or even not even at a high corporate level, but in a very kind of professional corporate environment, it is more okay for a guy to lose his shit at a conference table and like yell at somebody and belittle them or pound his fists on the table than it is for a woman to shed tears. Like, what is that about? Right. When really those are, in many ways, our socially prescribed reactions to very similar events. But somehow it's still more okay to, for a guy publicly to fly off the handle than it is for a girl to cry in, in public. Like, and that's not okay. And not only is that not okay, a girl should be able to pound her fist and a guy should be able to cry. And like, we're all mixed up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, part of what you highlight there too that I think is important is that Sometimes people confuse having feelings with a lack of emotional regulation. You know, like I I think that sometimes we think of if we're going to have feelings and talk about feelings and and learn how to process feelings, that it's all about pounding your fist Mm -hmm. in a meeting. Yeah. Like I don't particularly want to participate in a meeting where people are pounding their fists all the time. You know, I want to, I want to participate in a meeting where people are expressing anger more constructively across the board. Yes. And learn it, you know, and learning those skills and what that looks like. What does healthy anger look like for everyone? 
And why is it that, you know, right now, I think is an especially difficult time with we're recording this right now, it's going, you know, we're recording it a a little while before it's going to air. So this is like the day, day two of the Kavanaugh hearings. If you're Mm -hmm. keeping up with, uh, you know, American political stuff, there's a, a Supreme Court nominee who has allegedly, um, almost, I don't even know, that's a horrible way to put almost raped a woman when he was in college. Like he's, uh, he's an alleged, uh, sexual assaulter and there have been multiple women speak up, but today was the day that, um, the first woman who spoke up actually testified. And so obviously this is fresh on people's minds because of course our own president Trump is a known sexual offender and has actually bragged publicly about, um, about sexual assault and kind of joked about sexual assault. We have it on tape yet somehow he still got elected. And, you know, lately I've been much more active verbally. I've been much more active in social media about talking about, women's rights, about talking about social justice for people of color, talking about white privilege, talking about male privilege, um, talking about the way that we treat LGBTQ individuals within our community. And I am amazed by the backlash that I periodically Mm -hmm. put on Twitter, on Facebook, on, and they're on my pages where I'm like, wait, don't these people know what I'm about if they follow my work? <laughs> Yet somehow it's a yeah. weird crossover with the skeptic community and like libertarianism. And I just, it blows <laughs> my mind and it makes me very, very sad when I actually see a lot of white men. I don't know if I should instead say white boys who are violently defending misogyny and racism and hatred. And I think all of that comes down to maybe not a lack of empathy, but to very um, underdeveloped, very naive empathy. Yeah, I think that's an accurate assessment of that. And I like one of the things I often wonder about some of that behavior is how many people engage in it have never directly engaged or rarely engage with people from those demographics, mm-hmm. um, at least in any sort of meaningful way. You know, and I think that's something we sort of, we know this, that um, like real empathy happens when you meaningfully engage with a person directly. Like it's not just about imagining yourself in someone's shoes. Like that's, that can be, that can have some value, but, but it's really about meaningful direct engagement and conversation and talking to somebody about how they feel and about their actual life experience. And I bet a lot of the people that would be trolling your Twitter and your Facebook are probably not having real meaningful conversations with queer women of color in their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, So it's difficult to get that perspective. It's such an important point, right? I grew up in the South. I grew up in Texas. I now live on the West Coast, thank goodness. Um, But And I lived in New York for for a stint before I came to Los Angeles. And there are great people in Texas. There are great people all across the world. Um, But you do... My parents live in Texas. Oh, yeah. Where do they live? (laughs) They live in Dallas. No way. That's where I grew up. I grew up in Plano, Texas, right outside of Dallas. Ah, they live in Capel. Awesome. <laughs> so my mom lives in Richardson. My dad still lives in Plano. And, you know, that's that's my home. And so you've visited them, should I assume? Have you mm-hmm. had a chance oh, yeah. to visit them? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So 
So you know the culture. Anybody listening who's from the South knows the culture that, you know, it's not the most progressive area. Of course, there are incredibly progressive people marbled into it. But it was a difficult place for me to grow up being somebody who is, I think, a lot more progressive than a lot of my peers were. And what I find is that for people who are, let's say, overtly racist or overtly misogynistic, and obviously most people aren't in that overt category, will the will the where they will just say what they think with no consequence, but that still exists. It's becoming a little bit more emboldened under this administration is that you're right. Like they just don't see people who aren't like them very often, or if they do see them, they caricature them instead of meaningfully engaging with them. And then the first step Mm -hmm. is that maybe that, you know, a, a white kid growing up in a very white district, um, who maybe has very racist parents will, become friends with a black kid and then they're friends and they're hanging out, but they see them as quote unquote, the exception to the rule. And because yeah. cognitive dissonance starts to set in at that point and cognitive d- dissonance is difficult to deal with. And until it becomes so great that you cannot justify it saying, Oh, but they're one of the good ones. And you start to realize, wait, they're all one of the good ones. I was one of the bad <laughs> ones for assuming that they're all bad ones. That's when you start to see a shift and it requires interaction with people who aren't like you yeah but we're not trained to do that are we are you know culturally (laughs) we're reinforced to to stay with people who are just like us and and just surround ourselves with people who think the same way and say the same things and and that's not very good for empathy no absolutely not (sighs) yeah and i think it's a difficult thing for people you know across the board too with um with all sorts of worldviews and making sure that you're gaining perspective and yeah. And it's one of the things that I think about that has offered me a tremendous amount of value is maintaining intergenerational friendships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's been really valuable for me is getting that perspective of, of people who have lived on the planet a lot longer than I have. That's been really valuable for broadening my perspective of the world. Uh, I love that you mentioned that. I mean, that's part of what really attracts me to death and dying psychotherapy is that I get to spend time with people who are old because most people who die are old. Mm-hmm. Some people who die are young. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it does happen, right? Young people get a, di- a terminal diagnosis and they start to come to terms with the fact that they're going to die. Many young people who die, die um, of accidents or they die suddenly. So they don't have that experience. But some young people have cancer, obviously, and they end up dying um, of their cancer. But many, you know, old people die. It's part of being old. And so to me, it's an amazing opportunity and experience to be able to talk to these people and learn from them and and gain insight from the long and rich lives, the, the wisdom that they have. But culturally in the West, we are like so youth obsessed that we completely hide our elderly. And we like people mm-hmm. won't step foot into a nursing home. It's the weirdest thing where like Eastern cultures aren't like that. Like our, in Eastern cultures, grandparents lived with people. And the idea is, oh, my gosh, look at this wise person who's been there, done that. Shouldn't I maybe learn from them? But here we're like, oh, I'll figure it out the hard way. <laughs> like, it's so weird. It's so yeah, weird. Absolutely. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. You can get so much out of people. I mean, and I think back, even my mother, my mother, she's actually here visiting right now. We're about to head to dinner after we finish this conversation. She's not old. Oh. I mean, I guess a young person listening might be like, that's old. But like, I'm 35 next month. She's 70 in two months. And I think about the fact that like, you know, when she was a little kid, desegregation was happening. When she was in college, right. the Vietnam War was happening. Like, look at the stuff that she lived through and the perspective she has. And I've been through some shit now because I'm 35, but like nothing like she's been through. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And we forget that. We forget that our parents were our age once and our grandparents were too. And they, you know, they lived life, man. And they have a lot, <laughs> a lot to teach us and a lot to help us improve our empathy. Yeah. Absolutely. I tend to not forget that I think too much with my mom. Like I, I talk to my mom all the time and uh, sometimes it's it's that startling realization of how much you're becoming your mother. I don't know <laughs> if you experienced this. <laughs> yeah. like the, the, I, I think I resisted this when I was younger, but the further along I get in my 30s, the more I just sort of accept like, oh yeah, I'm becoming her. <laughs> she, she she spoke about different content, but she was a, a public speaker. Uh-huh. I'm just gonna let Killer work in the background. He's just gonna be a jerk. And that's fine. He can just join us. <laughs> yeah, he's <laughs> that's his empathy right there. He's practicing his empathy for the front door, um, or for who's on the other side of the front door. So she was a public speaker. What did she speak about? Uh, so she taught teachers how to better teach kids who didn't have English as their first language. Ah. Yeah, so she did, there was a real kind of social justice angle to the work that she did. Is she and herself I spent, an immigrant? No, no. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but she speaks Spanish fluently and mm-hmm. used that for some real social good. I love that. We need to introduce our moms. You know, my mom was a Spanish teacher her whole life. Well, not her whole life, but most of her life. And she's... Um, she oh, wow. Of, yeah, and she's, she's Puerto Rican. She's a first generation here. But like, I, I did an interview with her. If you guys haven't listened to the interview where I like actually interviewed my mom on the podcast, it's it's interesting oh. for sure. Because I was like, wow, we're doing this. Um, <laughs> it's not the easiest thing for me to do. But yeah, we should introduce... Is your mom here in LA? No, my mom. My mom's in Texas. Oh yeah, she's yeah. in Texas. You literally just said that she lives down the street. Yeah. Shut up. This is so perfect. So you grew up. Yeah. They raised you here in in California, but then they moved California. to California. Yeah, yeah, but they moved. And yeah, moved yeah, because my brother moved there. Yeah. Ah, but yeah, they should oh they should gosh. totally hang out. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. Okay, so so we've been talking for a while about the the work that you do, how you came to your work, some of the things that you've learned and gained along the way. I want to specifically talk about tea and empathy because I love the moniker. I love the idea. So I know that you do these different talks, um, you know, across the globe, really. You can talk about consent. You can talk about safe sex. You talk about communication. You talk about um, these things. But Tea and Empathy is a specific workshop where you use these cards that you talked about. And I, I, tell me about these mm-hmm. cards. You mentioned them before, but this is a, a tangible thing that people can like, people can buy them, can't they? Yeah, yeah. And I'm actually, I've just started a Kickstarter oh, cool. to get them into people's hands. Yeah. I, I originally created these cards just for the workshop. Mm-hmm. And what they are is they're a deck of feelings cards. Half of them have more challenging feelings on them. Um, things like stressed and fatigued and depressed and things like that. And half of them have more enjoyable feelings on them, like mm-hmm. optimistic and connection and purpose. But they're really a tool for is helping give people language to talk about their feelings. 
And you're probably quite familiar with all of the research around how important it is for people to be able to give words for their feelings. Yeah. Um, and how pivotal how pivotal this is for emotional regulation and for self-awareness. And it's it's really one of the building blocks for empathy as well. When we can help people uh, help identify other people's feelings, um, as well as help identify our own. And uh, I'd made this deck of cards to uh, to help facilitate some activities to help build people's empathy skills. And so originally it was just for this workshop. And then at the end of my workshops, people were saying, can I, can I buy these cards? Yeah. Yeah. Like I want to use these. Yeah. <laughs> I want to use these. Um, so I started selling them just as like a print on demand thing and, and selling them to people who attended my workshops. Um, and it's kind of grown uh, to be a little bit larger than, um, than I've, currently had systems to support. So I'm doing a, a Kickstarter so that I can make it like a proper product with a custom box and an instruction manual. And so that's something that I'm launching this October. Oh, that's so exciting. Okay, cool. And you know, by the time that this airs, I should be able to put the link to that into the show notes so that people can see it. Gosh, I need these cards. I'm actually, I'm not gonna, I don't want to say it out loud, but I'm actually like in the process of ordering them right now. <laughs> And I'm like adding my shipping address. And I'm like, oh, these are going to be so helpful. And not just honestly, not just for working with clients, but I think for my own self-discovery. Like I mentioned before that I've I've struggled with depression quite a bit. I'm a big advocate of like uh, erasing stigma around uh, mental health treatment. But part of I think my journey towards studying psychology was because I personally have some difficulty being in touch with my own emotions. And I think that this is common Mm. of individuals who have experienced early childhood or even any amount of life trauma or of abuse or neglect or things like that, that they cope and they build up these incredible coping mechanisms that help them lead you know, functional, fulfilling lives. But in doing so, they tend to wall off some of the emotional difficulty that they deal with. And when they wall it off and they lose um, access to those aspects of themselves, I think that it really is kind of preventing them from leading their lives as a really complete and whole and authentic person. And in a way, these coping mechanisms have really helped them. But, it, you know, the things that sometimes help you get ahead at work or get ahead in academia are not the things that help you maintain a healthy relationship and they can fight against each Absolutely. other. Absolutely. I think often we, um, you know, we, we do things to survive mm-hmm. and sometimes that means shutting down a little bit, but you know, often we get to a place of, of ease in our life where we want to open up more and we want to be more in touch with our feelings. Um, but we can get a little stuck with how we get there. Yeah. And when we want to open that, open those gates up a little bit, it can be really helpful to um, build back that emotional granularity mm-hmm. and, and recognizing those, those feelings and the nuances of those feelings and, you know, how, how joy is different than happiness. That's, that's different from ecstatic and, and all of those things, like really exploring what those things feel like in our bodies. I think that's something that often people will do with the cards is that they'll just go through the deck and think about, how does this feel in my body? Like, when do I feel this feeling? And that's, that's been really beautiful to observe and hear people tell me about um, what they do. Like I, I had originally created it as very much an interpersonal tool. Yeah. Um, but, but people have told me 
so much about how they use them just on their own to sit with their own feelings and get more comfortable with their own feelings. Which really makes perfect sense. I mean, I'm, I'm taking a social psychology course right now, and it's interesting to see that the field of social psychology, which when we think about social psychology, we think about interpersonal interaction, but the field has in many ways sort of evolved into a conversation about cognitive psychology and a conversation about relationship with the self. And that's because... We can't have relationships with other people if we don't have relationships with ourselves. <laughs> and it comes back to the very first thing we were talking about. It's impossible to be empathetic if you don't even know how you personally react emotionally to an experience. How could you ever exercise empathy if you're not empathetic with your own thoughts and feelings? Yeah, absolutely. It's a real delicate balance, mm -hmm. right? Because I think, you know, the, the one piece too is, is the, the self-regulation piece. Because if something that someone is sharing with you is um, challenging in any way, like being able to regulate your own emotions so that you can be present with someone else's is pivotal. But then that other piece of, you know, how can you balance checking in with your own backlog of emotional experiences to draw on some insight about what someone else might be feeling, but then not getting so caught up in that, yeah. that you don't then project your experience onto theirs. That's such a delicate thing that has to be practiced. Uh, and it must be so tough for you coming at it with a room full of people that are all coming at it at different stages. There are probably some people who have been practicing empathy their whole lives and they're just there to try and, you know, put a bow on it. And there are other people who are like empathy, not aware of that term. <laughs> wait, wait, what are feelings? Yeah, exactly. What are those? I have three of those. It, it is funny too, where you see the... Um, you show them the deck of cards and they go, wait, there's feelings on all of those cards. <laughs> I didn't know there were that many feelings. <laughs> That's hilarious. I love it. Oh, so, so true. Really? Speaking of that de deck so of cards, I just put in my order and I have my order number. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> Yay. Yay. Let me know. Like when you get them, let me know if you want to chat and I can tell you different ways to use them. It, there's a, there's a little PDF download. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. This is so exciting. Okay. Okay. So because, oh. You're very far away, and I think it, that means it's ass early in the morning for you, or is it really late at night? Oh, it's not too oh, early. Okay, cool. No, it's 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 eleven a.m. Oh, on a Friday. It's a comfortable yeah, morning. It's That's about what time I wake up. Um, and because my mom <laughs> is currently sitting on the patio, drinking coffee and reading a book, waiting for us to leave for our dinner reservation, I think it's about time <laughs> to to wrap up the show with those last two questions. The two questions that I ask everybody who comes on my show. So, um, you ready for them? They're big picture, but I can tell you're you're a big picture kind of person. I am indeed. I'm ready for you. So when you think about the future, I want you to tell me two different things. The first question is, what is the thing that, you know, legitimately keeps you up at night? What are you actually really concerned about? Maybe you're even a little pessimistic or cynical about the thing that you're, you know, you're like, Ugh, things are not looking good in this aspect. But on the flip side of that, genuine optimism true, not just lip service, but true excitement. What is the thing that you're actually really looking forward to and you're actually really hopeful for? Okay. So the thing that, the thing that keeps me up at night that I feel genuinely worried about is the fact that we are not teaching young people social and emotional learning skills in a systematic way. Like you mm -hmm. see this in some schools, they're doing it, but it's not something that's widespread. And that really 
worries me because you see how we have to clean up the mess of this later in life. And it's just the being able to interact with other humans and navigate feelings and navigate relationships and navigate consent. We see the, the consequences of this and the fact that this isn't being taught every year when people are young, um, I think is really criminal. Yeah. So that's something that worries me that I think about all the time. Um, the thing that I'm optimistic about, I think it might be a little bit surprising to people because I think a, a lot of people are more pessimistic about this, but um, I'm optimistic about social media. And I, I think this is like, we, we see how this can actually be quite detrimental to people's well-being. the whole seeing everyone else's highlight reel. And I think there can be a tremendous amount of harassment. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's like like any social space. I think there can be some real downsides to it. Um, but I'm I'm hopeful about the fact that there are more humans connecting than they ever have historically. Yeah. Um, and things things like the Me Too movement, and we're seeing now the Why I Didn't Report, and all of that makes me really hopeful about people feeling less alone. And I'm I'm hopeful that that can be mobilized for social good. Amazing. I I completely agree with you. I mean, there is always a dark side to everything, right? Everything in the world is nuanced, even ice cream, damn it. Um, (laughs) So we do have to always, you know, see things for what they are and try and understand the, the, the nuance and the balance and all of that stuff. But when it comes to social media, like, This, I think, piggybacks exactly what we were talking about before. Racism, misogyny, hatred, fear. These things are fed out of not having exposure to people who aren't like you. And the more that you can befriend people Mm -hmm. from the other side of the world through social media, the more you're going to see that there's a lot less that divides us than there is that unites us. And I think that will help strengthen the empathy muscle. You're exactly right. I hope so. I think more might need to be done to leverage that in a more meaningful way. But I I feel hopeful that that could happen. Absolutely. Well, gosh, Kate, this was such a great chat. I I think it was very cathartic for me. I also think that I learned a lot. (laughs) I'm also excited because we were talking about some of these gender issues before and my listenership on the podcast, which is enduringly frustrating for me. I love you guys, but why are 80% of my listeners men? It's because it's a science show and I hate that it just self-organizes in that way. I'm always trying to push for a, a larger female listenership half, if not more than half of my guests are women on the show. And don't get me wrong, I have a lot of incredible dudes who listen to the show who have young daughters. And I love the feedback that I get from men saying that they like to listen to the show because they want to um, they want to do right f- by their daughters and, and kind of understand these perspectives a little bit more. But in this specific case, I'm thrilled that uh, we were able to reach my 80% male audience. <laughs> so thank you for that. I'm super interested in feedback on this episode. Yeah, I really can't wait to hear what, what all you guys have to say about it. And Kate, gosh, thank you for joining me. It was just an absolute blast. Oh, it was absolutely a joy to talk with you. It's, it's, yeah, I love your work and I love being interviewed by you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Oh, oh, and let people know where they can find your work. Like, what's the easiest way? What social are you most active on? And like, what website should they go to? 
Ah, so you can find all of my empathy work at tandempathy.org. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Kate Kenfield. Excellent. All right. Well, once again, thanks for joining me and everybody listening. Thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. 